Thank you, worship team. Well, let's pray briefly together here before we start. Lord God, as we just sung, we just give you praise for this rich salvation that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for so many blessings that you bring into our life. Not only our eternal destiny is secure, but so many blessings that come to us each and every day, each and every week in our lives. You look out for us, we belong to you as we've been singing. And we want to give praise to you and pray for a few events that are coming up as we begin so many different activities and ministries this fall. We want to, we're going to be praying for the street fair, but in your wisdom, you saw fit to bring the rain, another form of blessing into our lives. But we pray for the upcoming Harvest Festival that we're planning for the end of the week or end of the month. And we do pray that for that, that you would, Again, guide the weather so that it will be cooperative for us at that time and move people to come to that event. Thank you so much for the planning that has already gone into it and the volunteers. We ask that you would raise up even more and that you would bless conversations, that they would build relationships with people that we've not met before, that there would be opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray for so many things that are happening this month, the new ministries that are starting, so many ministries that are getting restarted in the fall. We pray that more and more people you would bring to hear your gospel and to become followers of you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that in the midst of it, too, that all this activity, that we ourselves would be transformed uh, continually with the things that we teach and the relationships that we have with people, that we would become more faithful followers of you, Lord Jesus. Uh, that's a goal in our life. And we pray that this morning as well as we listen to your word, that uh, we would listen to your teaching, Lord Jesus, and that we would become more faithful followers of yours. Amen. Well, before we begin looking at our passage of Scripture this morning, I just wanted to make a couple um, brief announcements. So first of all, <clears throat> you know, many of you know that I'm, I'm on this uh, cancer journey, but uh, I don't usually like to talk about it publicly, but there's a big milestone this week, in case you hadn't heard it already, is that the primary site of the cancer is gone. So we just praise the Lord for that. So... So, of course, we're rejoicing. It hasn't sunk in yet, but uh, it's good news. And thank you so much for your faithful prayers, all your concern for me and my wife, and, uh, and just all that. So now we just got to take care of the liver, and then we'll be home free, right? So, so we'll be praying for that as uh, the Lord deals with that in the next few months as well. Also, I wanted to um, announce for you, um, so the book of the month, you notice I've been doing that in News and Notes, suggesting a book. So this month, it's uh, Basic Christianity by John Stott. The book's been around for a long time, but it keeps getting reprinted because it's such a good book. So maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but I really encourage you to get it and read it. It's uh, one of those books that I've used multiple times in sharing the gospel with people, especially if they have a lot of questions about Christianity. This book just does a wonderful job of answering them. Um, so the outline, uh, there's many chapters in it, but who, is, who Christ is, what we need, what Christ has done, and how to respond. So... Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and if you happen to be in a Bible study and you haven't yet picked curriculum for this fall or what you want to study, this would be actually a really good book uh, for a Bible study group to go through. So I just really encourage you to pick up a copy of this if you don't have it, uh, Basic Christianity by John Stott. The link is in the news and notes, and you can just go there and purchase your own copy. All right, well... We're looking at Luke chapter 14 as we're continuing our study this morning, but before we get into that, I mean, I think we've had a similar experience in our lives as to what we read about in our passage today. 
So, I mean, how does it make you feel when somebody doesn't show up for an appointment that you have with them? You know, does it make you upset? Especially if they don't even call. Uh, or worse yet, you see them again and they never even mention it. I mean, what if, though, it weren't just an appointment, but it were like this big dinner party that you were hosting at your home, and not just a normal one, but the kind of one that you spent hours preparing, weeks planning, and you have all these special items that you prepared, getting it all ready, and then on the day of the party, your guests start calling in at 3 p.m. And one by one, they give you these lame excuses, you know, showing little appreciation for all the preparation. They reveal that they have priorities besides you, um, and some of them, it's like, you know, I don't think you ever really meant to show up. You know, that's what you're thinking. Perhaps something similar has actually happened to some of you. We've had it happen to us before. And, uh, you know, first thought that comes to your mind is, oh, what a bunch of ingrates, you know? And it's because now, now you have to do something with all this food. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but, you know, it's not just the food that's really involved, right? It's the money. It's uh, the creative energy. It's all the time. And uh, so you start calling up some other friends, and you say, hey, you want to come over for a last-minute party? We got a lot of great food. Even invite neighbors that maybe you've not talked to in months, you know, other than when you had to discuss a hedge or something. And you say, hey, you want to come over for dinner? And uh, friends across town, you might, you might even invite people you don't know. And you end up with a much better party than you would have had anyway. It's like, well, these people actually appreciate it. It's great. And you have a whole lot of new friends. And so then likely next time around, there are certain people that will not be getting invitations. And, uh, but there will be new people that will be getting the invitations. Anyway, that's been my experience. But, you know, Luke doesn't want people to miss the kingdom banquet. That's huge, much bigger thing. God is serving up salvation that's going to delight our souls for all of eternity. And so please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15, or you can just follow along in the text as I printed it for you in your worship folder. But it's all about God's generosity in salvation toward us. So a banquet is a wonderful picture of the kingdom. It's a wonderful picture of salvation. It's a wonderful picture of really the richness of blessing that God has in store for us. And what we'll learn this morning is that our God is incredibly gracious with his salvation blessings for the whole world. That's what this passage, this parable that Jesus teaches is all about. In one way, you could sort of look at this section as a one-act play that has three scenes to it. Um, it's pretty easy to follow. In verses 15 to 17, you might entitle that scene, Dinner's Ready, Come and Enjoy. The next scene, 18 to 20, just one lame excuse after another. And finally, in verses 21 to 24, scrambling to fill the banquet hall. And that's the focus. That's the ending. Now, we're actually involved in the middle of the story from last Sunday uh, all the way from verses 1 through 14. There was this large dinner party that was going on at a religious leader's home that Jesus was at. And if you remember, there was a setup involved about healing in this whole situation. And there was, there was this man who came, and Jesus healed him. And then Jesus decided to tell parables about guest lists and seating arrangements. And in the midst of all that, to teach eternal spiritual truths. And we're going to reread it in a second to get, our, to get us set up. Uh, but then there's this one pious guest, not in a good sense, changes the subject on Jesus and makes this insipid religious remark that we're going to look at in a moment about the Messianic banquet. And so it takes Jesus on another uh, tack, and he decides, well, this is a new topic. And uh, he responds to it. This trite remark by this person leads to a parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the Great Supper, as it's known. 
There's a similar parable at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22, but that's likely a very different occasion. If you compare them, you'll see the vocabulary and the details of the parables are very, very different. And just so you understand, you know, rabbis would often teach in this way at the time, and so there would be um, sort of certain stock stories, if you will, that would be told, but bringing out different points on different occasions, depending on the audience and the teaching situation. And so that's what we have here. And again, Luke wants us to learn that God is incredibly generous, generous with his salvation blessings for the whole world. So anyway, we're at the first scene. Dinner's ready. Come and enjoy. And so there's this platitude of presumption that's announced in verse 14 or verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, we're still at the dinner table from verses 1 to 14 after this Sabbath healing. So let me read to you verses 7 to 14 here pretty quickly. And he began to speak a parable to the invited guests. And notice how many times in your English translation even the word invited comes up. Because that's a key word to be focused on as we go forward in our passage. So he spoke to the invited guests when he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor unless someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both shall come and say to you, give this place to this man, and then in disgrace you'll proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when you one has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll have honor in the sight of all at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And he went on to say to those who one, to the one who had invited him, when you give a party, a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a party, a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they don't have means to repay you. And you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And as most likely that it's this last phrase, the resurrection of the righteous, that probably stimulates this trite remark. And so this guest blurts out in a very typical, pious Jewish comment of hoping to partake in the Messianic banquet. It's like a, like a random toast. Oh, blessed are all who will drink or will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, because they're looking forward to fellowshipping with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs and, and all these things. And the Messianic banquet was a term uh, that was used to picture salvation blessings for all of us at the end. Although, of course, Jesus, the Messiah, having already come, he's already started serving up the appetizers, if you will, in this whole, in this whole metaphor. But the famous passage is in Isaiah that we've looked at, uh, in Isaiah 25, and the other prophets allude to it well. And Revelation 21 and 22 completes the picture. So if you really want to read the end of the story, you can go to Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters in your Bible, and they talk about these blessings. But again, just Isaiah 25, that section, verse 6, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched out over all nations. He'll swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and he'll remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we've waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So we have all of this in the background of sort of the setting of what just happened. And we have these expectations that are floating around. 
We have Jesus healing a person. We have, you know, people not happy about that, and Jesus making some very direct comments. Not only that have impact on the way we live our lives now, but on the future, and whether or not you're really going to be eating at that banquet. And so it would be expected by this pious man and his remark, oh, blessed is everyone who gets to eat bread in the kingdom of God, that somehow Jesus would return it by, you know, in a sense, raising his glass and saying, may we allow it to be. But as you know Jesus well enough for the Gospel of Luke so far, Jesus doesn't like platitudes of social politeness. He doesn't. Jesus doesn't really care what you think about your own spirituality. We see that all over the Gospel of Luke. He's not impressed with people who are so impressed with themselves and impressed with other people and like to impress other people and pretend they're so spiritual. Instead, Jesus tells a parable addressing the matter of just who is actually going to be at that banquet. And so he tells a parable against this man, this presumption. It's called the parable of the Great Supper. And it begins this way. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, the certain man in our parable giving the banquet dinner, of course, is God himself, and particularly speaking, the father here. And we learn that he's obviously a very wealthy and great host. As the story goes, it's a big dinner, a great banquet, whatever your translation says. And we should note that it probably took a long time to prepare such a feast. In this day and age, this culture would take days of preparation. Maybe even weeks would be put into this, more likely. And notice that it says he had already invited many, and this was part of the custom. But he already invited many people, and if you go back to the interpretation of the parable, invited many people to the kingdom, invited many people to recognize his Messiah that he would send. Because long ago, in the prophets and in the scriptures, the invitation was already sent out. And the people had already accepted the invitation. So, okay, I'll be there when he shows up. And they're looking forward to the day of Jesus' arrival. And culturally, this double invitation was very common, especially for large banquets, because they take a lot of time. And so send an invitation first, you get the head count. And then as the banquet gets a little bit closer, you send out another invitation, maybe even some samples, and you get the second count. And so now... In our parable, as Jesus tells it, God the Father has sent his servant, meaning his eternal son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to tell Jewish people the kingdom is here. And Jesus is saying to them, enter with me and enjoy. That's the message of the New Testament. It's the message that we've been hearing from Jesus' own lips all through the Gospel of Luke so far. It's the message of the New Testament that Jesus has brought the kingdom and with it, the initial blessings of salvation that have been promised by the prophets, by history, uh, by God, to so many righteous men and women in, in the history of redemption. And Jesus Christ then is going to return someday, and he's going to bring the fullness of the kingdom. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that day when Jesus returns and the blessings of salvation just continue to be ours. So in keeping with the metaphor here, you know, the banquet's already begun. The opening courses are being served. There's such an enormous and elaborate feast in front of us with delicacies, spiritual delicacies, too numerous to count. Salvation in Jesus surpassed 
the expectations of the Old Testament. And what we have in this current age is just the first course, and it's going to take an eternity to get through the whole meal. So we should look upon our experience of salvation and living in it as, a, and as an experience of a spiritual banquet. There's so, so think about that image. I mean, this is a biblical image. Think so much about what it's like to feast upon the Word of God. First, for our minds. Then for our hearts. And ultimately, changing our affections. That is, the things we love. And the things that really drive us and our emotions. In fact, if you'd like a great place to start, I would suggest that you start at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. And the reason I recommend that book and the beginning of that is because it opens this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And especially the opening chapter of Ephesians, but chapter 2 and 3 as well, and it continues, are so dense with theological truths and blessings that you could just sit there for hours and ponder them. You could study them. You could pray over them, and your soul will be blessed. That's what it means to feast at the Word of God. So don't be temperate when it comes to feasting at this particular banquet because there's great joy in God to get out of your life, to get out of the Scriptures, to get from the church, to get from mission, to get from worship. Our God is an incredibly generous God with His salvation blessings for us and for the whole world. So come, the dinner's ready. That's the opening scene. And so you'd expect now we're going to have a wonderful party. But as all good stories have a, a down point that comes next. Tragedy. Because now there's one lame excuse after another that's given. So they just start pouring in. And they start in verse 18. Now we'll go through them quickly in a moment. But a background to these three lame excuses I think is helpful for us to understand. Is that unbelievably, these invited guests who previously accepted, they said they would be at this party, are one by one, one after another, making excuses on the last, at the last minute. These are the really pathetic ones. They're refusing to come to the banquet that has been prepared. It's a terrible, disgracing insult to the great host and the great, of the great banquet. This isn't just normal rudeness, so sorry, I can't make it. So these excuses actually mirror, to some degree, legitimate excuses from battle in wartime mentioned in Deuteronomy 20. Were you aware of that? That's very purposeful here in our text. So it might be in a footnote or a study note in your Bible. But that's really key for understanding part of these excuses. So back when the Israelites were conquering the land, uh, right type of thing, and there were legit three legitimate excuses to delay your enrollment. One is, you just built a house. Well, we sort of see that coming up in this storyline. One, another one is, we just planted a vineyard. And the third one would be, you're engaged to a woman. So those were legitimate, time-limited excuses to be exempted from a battle during the conquest and all the ongoing skirmishes. Well, that was 3,400 years prior to what's going on now in this passage. And these excuses do not cut it for a one-night dinner party, right, in our parable. They just don't. And so that's sort of, that's the point of this illusion, 
is that how tragic it is. It's a double tragedy that people would use the wrong priorities and try to couch them in legitimate spiritual excuses to miss out on the kingdom of God. Do you see that that's what these people are doing? They're pretending to be good excuses, to be spiritual excuses, if you will, to exempt themselves. And people do this all the time today. They cover up their unspiritual priorities with spiritual language or even use Bible verses for that. Well, here we get to the three lame excuses. So the first one is that real estate's better than the kingdom that Jesus offers. That's what we read in verse 8. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I have to go out and see it. Please have me excused. Well, this man needs to inspect some piece of land, apparently. Never mind that you usually do that before you buy it, um, not afterwards. And so he asks to be excused and goodbye. Then the next one, verse 19, another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go examine them. Please have me excused. Well, apparently prosperity in your career plans are better than the kingdom that Jesus offers. Well, the wealthy man has to go try, try out these new five, five new yoke yoke of oxen apparently, but never mind, you normally do that again before the purchase, not afterwards. And he asked to be considered excused, and that's it. Goodbye. So verse 20, and another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. This man recently got married and simply states he can't come. He doesn't even ask to be excused. And actually, this is a very great insult in ancient Near Eastern culture, using your wife as an excuse. Oh, we have a bunch of cowardly men like that today, too, don't we? They're always using their wife as an excuse. Yeah, they're a bunch of cowards. So he doesn't even ask to be excused and just says he's not coming to the banquet. Well, all this applies directly to the religious leaders of the time, but it overflows to people who model their lives after these people. So let's think about this a little bit. So all the Jewish leaders have similarly snubbed God. That's why Jesus is telling this parable and giving these illustrations. They've rejected Jesus, who's the announcer of God's banquet. And, you know, they have all sorts of excuses to not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And they're likewise lame excuses. They would say, and we've we've heard them as we've read about it here, the Pharisees, they, they would say they're committed to the kingdom, especially if you interviewed them, and they, they're, but they're really more committed, as we've already seen, because, you know, it's starting to show. They're more committed to their own religiosity, to their own political advantages, and to their own personal agendas than they really are to Jesus, the Messiah, the kingdom, what the prophets foretold, really seriously grasping at these things. They had all sorts of biblical and theological reasons that they could give you why why Jesus just cannot be the Messiah, why it really isn't the kingdom that he's inaugurated even though there's tons of divine evidence in their face to the contrary, because they're already committed themselves to be opposed. Have you ever noticed that? That once people commit themselves to a position on something, it doesn't matter what the evidence shows. They are committed to opposition, and that's what's going on with these guys. So how tragic, and how evil it is really to couch wrong priorities as legitimate biblical excuses when it comes to missing and missing the kingdom of God. And as we read about in all these lame excuses, Luke is making it clear that, you know, wrong priorities and wrong expectations really can cause you to miss the kingdom of God. It's, uh, we have to take care that we don't have wrong priorities in life and wrong expectations of God. I wonder if you've heard similar excuses before. 
you know, there are many people who claim to be Christians, claim to be spiritually minded. Uh, they'll even declare in some way or another that they're mature in the faith, you know, sort of like the religious leaders did, although at Jesus' time. Although I've tended to find in my experience that people who claim that are probably even less pious than the Pharisees. That's just my experience. But when it comes down to practical life in the kingdom of God um, and in the church and really pursuing God, they just have all these excuses of why, why, why they can't be involved, why they can't learn things. Now, there, of course, there's a big disclaimer. People that are new to the faith, of course, we, we extend a tremendous amount of adjustment period, if you will, for the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives and to realign their affections and cause them to love the scriptures and want to study them, or to be in prayer, to be in fellowship in these types of things. And that's okay. But you probably likely had some of these same conversations I've had over the years. And I jotted these down because they're so crazy. I thought I'd share them with you. Um, and, and, but it's so sad and it's so frustrating. And, and even now, because some of these are from a long time ago, so you don't have to worry. It's not you I'm talking about specifically today. Maybe next week. But um, so this one is the be- one of the best ones I've ever heard. So these people could, for some reason, could never uh, come to church on a Sunday morning because they were having work done on their house. But for some reason, the workmen could only come at 10.30 a.m. every single Sunday morning. It was unbelievable, and I even checked. It was true. I mean, they had workmen there at 10.30 on Sunday morning. There are 168 hours in the week, but somehow every single week, that was when they had to be there. I mean, this is still a head-scratcher. I haven't figured this one out. These people, they're friends of mine, but it's just unbelievable. So then another excuse I've, I've heard about this one over the years is that some people just have to work every single Sunday morning. Now, I understand that some jobs may require that, but not this one, okay? And so some, some of the people in this particular group of people I was with, they just, they're starting their business, but somehow it's always Sunday morning they have to start their business, or somehow they're always indispensable. But for some reason, no one else works at this place that you can't negotiate time with people, telling I'm off. So and it just goes on and on. But it's every single Sunday, like for years. I mean, we're not just talking about a few things. Um, and then a third excuse that I found, and these are real, these are not made up, is that this one, uh, this one sort of irks me more than anyone, is that, well, you don't know, have to have one day to be with my family. And I'm thinking, okay, does it have to be Sunday morning every single week? And then when I find out, because, you know, these people are friends of mine, I talk to them, it's like, he's still in bed when he's telling me that. So he's not, like, spending time with his family. He's sleeping. So these are just excuses, but they're all Sunday morning ones. But, of course, not, we're not limited to Sunday morning. But that's a paramount item for most believers is to be, like, you know, Raymond was sharing from the book this morning. I mean, that's, that's wonderful stuff because it's not just about coming and getting something for ourselves. It's coming to give to other people and to be an encouragement to other people. So these people are so short-sighted. But, you know, people vary the comments, but, and, and, and it depends on spiritual opportunities. It's not just this. I mean, you probably run into this you're trying to invite people to your Bible study. You know, and they say, oh, yeah, I want to come, I want to come, I want to come, but then it's just one lame excuse after another, or a retreat that you're hosting or being a part of, or just to have coffee with you or to come and pray with you, or maybe it's a social event that you're organizing, or maybe it's the youth group that you're running, and the list goes on and on and on. And, of course, this isn't a, this isn't a complete list I gave you. People can use... All, we all know this, because we've probably done it ourselves on occasion, but we can all use 
excuses that sound legitimate, but we know we're really just using an excuse. Oh, you know, the doctor, he's always a good excuse. Uh, grandkids, recreation, being sick, uh, sports events, I have to study for an exam. You know, the list goes on and on, uh, these things. But people actually expect us to buy lame excuses, and maybe we do more so than we should. And in fact, that's going to be exactly where Jesus goes next, is to talk about that. But we'll do that next week. But all this to say, you know, it's really sad and frustrating when, when you run into people and you're working with people, and you do this, we all do this in our ministries that we run, is that we run into people who claim to have this vibrant life in Christ, and we give them an opportunity to continue to grow. And it seems like a good opportunity for them, but then they just make these excuses that don't really add up, and it shows that they really don't want to pursue it, I guess. And we wonder if they've really read over the banquet invitation carefully enough. I mean, the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels, this particular passage. And so with these people, some we just need to let them go on their way, but for many, hopefully we spend time kindly going over in great detail with them what it is that they could experience, even more joy, and urge them to be a part of something. You know, and then... Eventually, we realize that, you know, it's probably best that I go talk to people that don't know how great this banquet is. I mean, that's even more fun to go out and find new people and share with them about the amazing things that Jesus can bring into our lives and about how incredibly generous he is with his salvation for those who want it. And so that's where we go next. These salvation blessings are for, for all the world. And the third scene, so, you know, first scene is, Come, dinner's ready, let's eat. The second one is, well, lame excuse after lame excuse. The third scene, as a result of this problem, is scrambling to fill the banquet hall. And that's what we read in verses 21 to 24. And so there's this scramble initially to invite others as Jesus continues to tell this parable. And the parable starts changing a little bit at this point, as you'll see, because the concept of a servant starts expanding just as the concept of who's being invited is expanding, and it mirrors prophetic language. Jesus is very intentional as he tells this parable and requires a lot of reflection on the Old Testament prophets. But anyway, verse 21, here's the scramble. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. And there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Of course, the Lord Jesus is the servant, remember, in this passage, and he reports to God the Father, the master, through his times of prayer. And God is angry with this whole situation. Now, eventually, what you're going to see he's going to do is withdraw the invitation from this group of people. I just decide, well, I'll just invite other people. Now, the servant, as I mentioned, now it starts to expand. It's going to include the apostles, just as it's starting to expand. Different people that are invited go out into the alleys and the back alleys, the streets of the city, as the parable goes. And the servant's instructed to invite outcasts, not the religious veneer-type people, the outcasts, the poor among these people. Do you notice it's the exact same list from verse 13? you notice that? Same people, right? To invite the poor, the lame, the crippled. This is the same list. 
again, it's reminiscent of all these prophecies, especially in Isaiah, that speak about the ministry of the Messiah. So briefly, again, Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ear of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Prophecy of Jesus Christ. Prophecy of literal physical healings, yes, that he will do, and he did when he was here. Also, at the same time, as you read the prophets in their context and fullness, spiritual meaning. That this is a condition of people's heart and life, and the Messiah would change it all. Isaiah 29, 18. On that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom, the darkness of their eyes of the blind shall see. The afflicted shall also increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 when he opens his ministry in his first sermon recorded for us, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberties to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And it goes on and on and on. So these are wonderful references again to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah who has brought the kingdom. And this, particularly in the parable, parable, is most likely a reference, as I already mentioned, to the many Israelites who would accept the invitation, the second round, if you will, in contrast to the leaders. Because these people, because of their condition in life, are much more able, apparently, to see their spiritual need and to see how much of a blessing it would be to eat at the banquet. It might even be a reference to the diaspora at the time, the Jews that were dispersed among the nations. But this servant did so, and he got many coming, right? Jesus preached to these people. The apostles focused on these people as well. So he invites them. They come to the table in our parable, and guess what? There's still room. So now what are you going to do? So now the host says, go out into the countryside and find some beggars who will come to the banquet. Well, if you're following along in the history of redemption, he's talking about you and me. We're those people. And so in verse 23, oops, sorry, it gets extended, the servant gets extended, it's now Jesus and the apostles and the church, you know, even like the, the servant songs of Isaiah get expanded, told to invite strangers beyond the city, even those people that are far away most likely a reference to the Gentiles and all the ethnic groups of the world. If you go back in chapter 13, verses 28 to 30, that's what we read about. These people are going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at the kingdom, but you yourselves will not be there, Jesus said to them. It's a reference to any and all who will respond and even people that are going to be found in some of the most unusual places in the world. He tells Back in Luke 13, 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, recline at the table in the kingdom, and behold, some who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. So you notice the servant needs to go compel people. And this is meaning like you insistently urge people to come because these people now, this last group, they don't know anything about this host. They never heard of his name before. But you see the first group and the second group, well, they all know who, who's being talked about. The great God of the universe, the creator of all things. The one who would send his eternal son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and inaugurate the kingdom through him. They, they knew these types of things, but this last group, they don't know anything about it. They don't know who God is. 
You run into people like that? Never heard of God. Never heard of his greatness. Never heard of his beauty. Never heard of his salvation. Never heard of these things. They're scattered all over the world, these people. And God's wealth and generosity must be proclaimed to them, has to be told them. And so he says regarding, you know, his son here in our, in our parables, we're bouncing back and forth between its, its meaning and its, and its sort of its, its, its imagery. But in, a, in one of the servant songs in Isaiah 49, this is what God the Father says to his son. It's too small of a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's God's plan. That's his intention. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. That's what Jesus said at the very end of his earthly ministry. So then finally, there is a withdrawal in verse 24 of the invitation. So, you know, the host in our story is pretty upset with this. So he says, well, none of those men who are invited then are going to taste my banquet. It's over. So it's not clear whether these are Jesus' words and sort of the summary, or it's still part of the parable, but it doesn't really matter. Anyway, none of those who were originally invited refers to the types above with these lame excuses on why they don't show up, which means why they don't accept Jesus as a Messiah and bringing the kingdom. So in the storyline, it means you know, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't even get a sample. So that was a customary thing. You send people out a sample, just to sort of like, oh, this is going to be a great banquet. No, he's not even going to give them a sample. Um, and he's not even going to let them show up if they change their mind later, show up too late. But regardless, it's very strong language, and it's for the purpose of stressing the seriousness of the situation. I mean, we should notice that all this is to say, this whole parable is to say, that there are going to be those who are not expected to enter the kingdom of God, but they'll enter because they put their faith in Jesus Christ when they heard about him and his kingdom. And there are going to be people who you think are going to be there, but they're not going to be there. The motif of the gospel here is that it's largely rejected by the Jews and sent to the Gentiles has been a part of Luke's gospel since the beginning, and it continues to escalate as we go through it. It gets put before us in the book of the Acts of the Apostle. Apostles actually played out in front of us in the book there and all the missionary endeavors and the rest of the New Testament. We'll be talking more about this as it goes on in Luke. But Luke would have us focus on this one thing at the end, scrambling to focus, scrambling to fill the banquet hall. So God the Father desires a full banquet for his son and the coming of the kingdom and the Messiah to show off the extravagance of his generosity to a large multitude of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue around the world. I hope we realize that why, the reason we're still here as the church is that it means there are still openings at the table. And that that means we need to scramble. We need to go out to people. Not stay. Jesus said go. So you go find people and talk to them about Jesus Christ. Talk to them about the gospel. Tell them how incredibly generous God is with his blessings. And he's going to save many for his glorious purposes. Now, it probably doesn't apply to many people here this morning, but the obvious, one obvious application is don't be a no-show for the banquet. 
If you're worried about that, maybe that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. But if you find yourself excluded on that day, you know, you only have yourself to blame because the invitation has been clear. You know, why would you reject the invitation to sit down in fellowship with the God of the universe? Perhaps more to the point for most of us, though, is to reflect on this statement that we've been talking about a lot this morning, and that is that our God is an incredibly generous God with his salvation blessings, and it's for the whole world. It's not just for us personally. But there is that part that has to come first because you know what? If we have to compel people to come in, if you're not enamored with God and his blessings, you're not going to be very compelling. So I really encourage us to take time to really enjoy the word of God, to really enjoy prayer, to really enjoy being a part of a church and ministering there, to really enjoy the mission that God has us on, ultimately to really enjoy Jesus Christ and his kingdom extravagance. I mean, it's always a good question and a good measurement. It's very simple. Are you filled with joy in the Lord? I mean, if you wake up grumpy or come up, try to just come up with things you can com- complain about today, that's not joy. The joy in the Lord is spending time with him and being able to have a smile on your face and going into the world. So a resolution for some of us might be to, to think through that, to spend more time maybe to renew what it means to be a devotional Christian. And then our task from this passage couldn't be more obvious, that, and it has been for the church historically as they read this passage. The church has always looked at this passage and said, we have to go compel people. We have to go talk to people about the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we as the new servants are supposed to go out far and wide and find people and compel them to come in. Of course, we pray for that. We definitely should be praying for that. But we also have to act according to our prayers. We don't want to be a hypocritical prayer. That's a person who prays for something, but then doesn't act in faith the same way they were supposedly praying. If you pray for people to come to Christ, then you need to act on it and go talk to people about Jesus Christ. That's how they go together. You see, this banquet hall of salvation is open And many people don't know much about God. They don't know much about his blessings. A lot of conversations that we have, just people are are so surprising at what they know and don't know. But we have to be able to elaborate in detail and with exuberance to be able to be compelling. You know, it's not just enough to sort of know the, the bullet points of the gospel. You have to be able to talk about them like with passion and how they've impacted your life and how they impacted your life this morning and how they're impacting your life during the day. Why is the cross so beautiful? What a strange emblem that you have, right? Why is the resurrection such an important thing in Jesus? Why is the future for you as a Christian so bright? We have to be able to talk about these things. So it's good to think about questions like this. What excites you about the kingdom? Don't let it just be some theological phrase that you want to study. What are you excited about in the kingdom of God? Jesus brought it. You're already experiencing part of it. But what are you looking forward to? What do you like about it now? What are you excited about as a Christ follower? Hopefully that's an exciting term, that we follow Christ. It's like, that's wonderful. Why is that so inspiring to you every day to do that? Why are you excited about being a part of a church? I mean, most people think that's incredibly boring. So why are you excited about it? Maybe you're not. Maybe you need to get excited about it. 
So start thinking about these things because, you know what, it's going to get you prepared. And that's really what we need to be is prepared to be able to talk to people about the kingdom with excitement. That's how we're going to get out there and scramble and fill this banquet hall. And remember that the great motivation is that God is so generous to so many people with his salvation. We don't have to do the work of conversion. That's God's work through his spirit. We just simply need to tell people about how great he is and let him, let him put that on their, in their minds and in their hearts. Well, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. I mean, what a wonderful way to celebrate the generosity of God and salvation and beyond. I mean, that's what this table is talking about. Yes, the bread symbolizes Jesus' body given for our sins, and the, and the cup signifies his blood ratifying this new covenant that was promised with the power of the Spirit. But the whole meal itself, yeah, it's meant to focus us on the kingdom, the messianic banquet to come. It's anticipatory of all the blessings that will come our way. So if the men who are going to help me serve uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, if you please come forward.